This is Repeat Prescription Radio. Hello and welcome back to Repeat Prescription Radio. Welcome back for the month of October. A bit late on this one, but you know, onwards and upwards. The usual excuses as always, night shifts, on calls, feeling a bit ill, just being a bit disorganised in general, I think. But you know, it's how it goes sometimes. So this month I am very lucky to be joined by a close friend of mine in Lewis, We'll get into the conversation in a second, but I just wanted to preface this and say that this is a continuation on the IBD series. I'm speaking to someone who has suffered with ulcerative colitis for a number of years, and Lewis presents his experience in in an insightful and relatable way for people both who suffer from IBD and don't. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned from this episode and hopefully you guys enjoy it. So stick around and stay a lot for the chat. Hello everyone, welcome back to Repeat Prescription Radio. Um, All things music, all things medicine. So today continues my series on inflammatory bowel disease. If you guys remember last time I gave you a brief run through of what inflammatory bowel disease is, what it comprises, which is mainly two conditions, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. I explained a bit about the symptoms, the treatment, the management, and then just touched on sort of what's sort of living with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease long terms means for patients and individuals. So as I've mentioned, the podcast is sort of switching to a, a sort of series format where I intend to tackle a topic on my own and then speak to someone who can give personal and sort of relatable experiences about said topic. So today I am luckily joined and very it's, it's sort of been a long time coming because me and Lewis haven't spoken a very long time, but um, I'm, I'm joined by a friend of mine who I've known for a, a very long time, uh, probably close to 15 years now, which is quite scary. <laughs> um, and although we speak very sporadically, because uh, we're both a bit rud- rubbish on our phones and we both live very busy lives, um, Lewis has very kindly um, offered his time up to talk about his experiences with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so I'd like to welcome Lewis to the show. So hello, Lewis. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks for uh, the uh, introduction. Um, <laughs> you are correct. We are both useless on our phones, um, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that the sentiment isn't there. So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, we spoke a bit before we came on air, and honestly, it's just like picking up where we left off, which is yeah. it's nice, isn't which it? Which is nice. Yeah, it's great. Um, 
so I think what we're going to do with this sort of podcast is just sort of tackle Lewis's journey with um, ulcerative colitis. Um, And I think it's important that we just start from the beginning, see where it goes and talk about how it's affected him um, in his sort of day-to-day life and sort of growing up um, because it's sort of been quite a long problem for him. But um, anyway, so massive question, um, but can you tell me about your experience with inflammatory bowel disease? Can you tell me about how this all started um, way back when? Well, how long have you got? (laughs) Um, So my initial um, diagnosis um, was actually quite, uh, quite long, to be honest, because I'd started to experience some form of uh, symptoms around the age of five, six. Um, and it wasn't probably until I was about probably 12 or 13 when someone finally brought up the, the phrase uh, ulcerative colitis. So between those sort of two t- um, signposts, or if, if for lack of a better words, there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of what actually was going on with me. Um, and obviously, growing up as a child, your parents are quite concerned because um, obviously your child's sick, they're going through these phases of being well and then just out of nowhere can be in hospital for up to two, three weeks at a time. Back to normal, same process repeats itself. Um, being prescribed various medications, which as a parent for a young child, it's all quite scary and and not what you would expect um, to to experience in their early childhood. Um, So, yeah, it it really was sort of nailed on uh, in terms of a proper diagnosis around the age of 12, 13. Um, And so obviously that was, well, that would be early, early secondary school just going yeah. into secondary school. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really when a proper label, if you want to put it that way, was put, was put on what was actually happening to me. Mm. Um, and I think, I think even though we were then finally given a label, myself, my parents, anyone close to me, still didn't really understand what it actually meant because I think up until maybe the last 10 years or so the research was maybe a little bit limited i mean you'll probably touch upon that given you're you're the uh the one that deals with this kind of thing and we're, i'm the one that has to suffer with it but it, the, I, to my knowledge the, the research behind it and the medication behind it wasn't nearly as advanced as it is now um so telling a 13 year old that you've got ulcerative colitis pretty much means nothing to them except the fact that you've got blood in your stool and you're going to the toilet a lot more. Um, So it didn't really help. In in my case, it didn't really help me understand it. It didn't help me get better by having a a proper diagnosis because I don't Mm. think at that time the medications that were given me were quite basic, to be honest. Um, So, yeah, that, that would be the kind of, time frame between 
starting symptoms and actually getting a proper diagnosis so so i i mean so i it, it's interesting because obviously i didn't come across you until secondary school yeah um i noticed or well i didn't even notice ever probably a lot of people noticed that uh, the first year at least i knew you because i joined your your classes in year eight you were just absent for so much of that year i think i, yeah. I barely even met you um but it's it's really interesting to hear and also also um I'd, I'd probably like to add very unusual for people to be having symptoms so young um yeah they initially is, thought it was it was irritable bowel which mm. i know is a separate thing because obviously there are crossovers between symptoms yes but the fact is i think mine was my symptoms were more frequent and more maybe elevated to mm. maybe be expected with um just ibd Abby. um and so yeah i mean you, you touched upon it uh, absent from school um i think it was yeah year eight i was in i was off school for about three months I think. yeah um i was being not homeschooled, I was being schooled from a hospital. I had a, the, the hospital has a, a school department or a tutor type department. So I had a tutor come in um, in the mornings. And to be honest, um, it was the last thing I wanted to be doing whilst sat in a hospital bed, um, mm. sort of hooked up to a IV and all of that kind of stuff. It was the last thing I wanted to be doing was bloody algebra. Um, so like you can imagine the situation uh, if when you when you're ill just with the flu the last thing you want to be doing is working let alone if uh if you've got symptoms like someone with crohn's or, or colitis or even ibd so mm. yeah so, i mean cuz I, I i think so so when so when 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 your symptoms were starting when you were this is we're talking obviously about 20 years ago to really show yeah. my age now so when your symptoms were starting was it just the, that you were having like frequent sort of bloody loose motions um and then it would just resolve on its own like what were the doctors really doing at the time for you or was it just because um, it was unknown they weren't really doing much when i was younger the the symptoms were probably no different to they are whenever I have a flare up now. The only difference I would say is that the time between flare ups was greater. Okay, fine. So, but in comparison, the older I got, the more frequent the um, flare ups became. Mm. And one doctor's sort of, um, way of uh kind of explaining it was that perhaps it was a hormonal thing i mean where you're getting to that age where as a teenage boy puberty whatever mm. all those kind of additional hormones in your system trigger immune system responses in some regard i mm. assume i don't know the ins and outs of the science but that was something that was brought up um and given that colitis is an immune system response it yes. kind of made sense in my head as mm. that maybe that would be my teenage years would be my worst years because of how much change my body was going through mm. um but that would be that would be the main difference was the timing 
or the duration between flare-ups um, mm. got significantly less the, the, the older I got. Okay, okay. And so then we, we come to sort of when we met um, and then we come to this period in your first couple of years, I would say, of secondary school where it, it's getting quite bad. Were you, obviously, you had multiple stints in hospital around that sort of time. What, um, how, how did you sort of deal with that? Like, obviously, starting school is starting secondary school is a huge sort of period in your life. Is there's a lot of uncertainty. It's pretty nerve wracking at the best of times. You're you're a, you're a very very small small fish in a very big pond at that point. Both. Yeah. Uh, sort of literally um and figuratively because you're tiny when you're year seven you don't realize that yeah i was tiny i was i was not the the tallest the tallest boy in the class um to be honest i don't really know how i dealt with it if i'm completely honest i don't think i had time to sort of react or process it all because it was all just constant and so sort of condensed into such small periods of time where um where i was healthy so i never really had mm. time to process what was going on because one minute i'd be ill a month later i might be okay and then i'd relapse again so that there was never really any time to process it um and supposedly when i was in wexham park which was the hospital that I always seem to end up in because it's my my closest one to me. Every all the nurses always used to say he deals with it really really well. Um, I don't think I ever. I mean, given the the symptoms, which can be, it can vary person to person. But as a as in my teenage years, when I would say it was worse, I always had the excruciating pain. Mm. But yeah. But yet, never would never cry over the pain. Uh, whether that was me bottling it up, or I just have an incredibly high threshold for pain, I don't know. Um, but the, there was always something that the nurses used to say was that uh, he just kind of took it on the chin. Um, mm. And to be honest, looking back, I think that perhaps was a I don't know a self-conscious thing or a subconscious um defense mechanism to it all because it's now all probably in the last six or seven years sort of slowly surfaced itself in other sort of byproducts of of that of those events and i would say that that's probably why for a good three four years i suffered with depression um and throughout those sort of last five six seven years where the anxiety that i have has, has stemmed from and i never um it, it's never really gone away and i think it's just a, a result of years of bottling up emotion that i probably mm. should have tried to release as it was happening yeah um yeah it, it, it's hard though to look back retrospectively because at the end of the day you're what an 11 year old 12 year old 13 year old child at that point and you are a child yeah. um 
it, it uh, you can look back with maturity and say, oh, I, I should have maybe dealt it with it X, Y, and Z. But when you're that young, it's very, it's very hard, isn't it, to process everything that's going on. And like I think you said, for because it was such an extended period of time before you reaching a diagnosis, it's almost, um, it's almost as if it, it became the normal for you. For yeah. For, for, a, sure. for, for a long period of time um so you don't realize until you get a bit more normal you maybe that this is what i've missed this is what i haven't necessarily dealt with um yeah for sure i i do think it was um it just was the norm like it was more how long could i last before another flare up rather than thinking about what a normal teenager should be thinking about which is um which was just not on the horizon for me um mm. mine was have i taken my medication have i done this have i done that and it was all revolving around um trying to live with a disease because that's mm. ultimately what it is um so it, it is it and, and as a as a kid you're still developing emotionally and mm. how to express emotion is is something that you develop as you get older so having all those kind of things on top just makes it, it is a recipe for not disaster but it's not exactly the, the nicest recipe to cook up yeah and I, I think that's important what you said there for people to understand this it's just uh, this isn't <laughs> This isn't what you expect from your teenage years. Um, no, no. Um, but for you, it became normal for your teenage years, and then it, I it didn't. Became... I didn't. To put it into perspective for people out there listening, um, I didn't taste alcohol until I went to uni because mm. because I didn't have the the teenage life where I'd go to house parties because. Um, for whatever reason I may have been ill at the time. Like there was no, I didn't experience those teenage experiences till I became almost an adult mm. and it was going off to uni. So the, it, everything seemed to lag behind. So whilst mm. I'm now 26, I'm probably in terms of experience wise, maybe still at a 20, 20 year old, 21 year old, mm. um, because I lost a lot of time not being able to do those kind of things yeah it, it, people that go on gap years when they finish school to southeast asia or places like that where they need a vaccine i can't i can't go because i can't have those live vaccines for um type uh, like typhoid yellow fever those kind of things because mm. because the drugs i take are immunosuppressants it would essentially be like giving me yellow fever which is yeah. not not ideal so i couldn't go on a gap year to southeast asia I, I could go on a gap year to europe or america or somewhere like that but if i wanted to go with a group of friends to southeast asia wouldn't be able to do it so it limit it does limit your options as well mm. when you are when you are healthy there are considerations you have to make around even where you like if you wanted to work abroad you'd have to work abroad where there was a healthcare system in place that could 
easy, that you could easily access um, uh, and, and things like that. So there's all these other considerations you have to make even when you're healthy, which I don't think people maybe necessarily have thought of before. Mm. Uh, and when do you think, I guess, when did you realise sort of, because was it later in your teens you realised that you were starting to lag behind, as you put it, um, or maybe that you were missing out on a lot of these sort of formative experiences that are seen in our teenage years? Um, I would say it was when I went to uni was mm. when it was explicitly highlighted because at uni things go on that probably were going on um in our teenage uh, lives uh, um at house parties and whatnot but it was the first time i'd seen it because i was away from home and luckily mm. for the most part of uni i was healthy um, i did have one flare-up when i was at uni but it was the first time that i'd seen uh, or experienced things or done things that I, I had heard about but never seen before. So, mm. yeah, u- uni would be when I really f- stepped into that world. Yeah. And then I guess just going back, so 13 years old, I remember you you, you, you had an extend, uh, extended sort of stint. You were having, I think you also had other health problems as well. You had problems with your back, am I right? You also yeah. had problems with your your um you had a you had a stomach ulcer as well i think as well am i making that up uh or you haven't i didn't have a didn't have a stomach ulcer i mean i had ulcers from the colitis but okay, I, think I had just a normal stomach ulcer but you are you are correct with the the back problems and actually at first they thought that was um rheumatoid arthritis but it turns out that Actually, that was again a byproduct of my immune system um, attacking uh, the muscle cells, and uh, there was a period of um, well, the, the the back pain was that in, incredibly painful that for I think almost two months, um, half of which I spent in Wexham Park, um, and the other half was in Great Ormond Street. I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair because I I could I couldn't walk because the pain was that incredibly um, high. But also, uh, as anyone that's been uh, in one place for a period of time, your muscles just waste away, mm. and so muscle wastage becomes a thing. I'd have to wear um, those like blood pressure socks, you know, the long yeah socks yeah the really tight ones. Yeah just to keep blood pressure and, and blood circulation um because if you're not moving the, your body has no real need for muscle so it just it deteriorates the the uh the muscle dystrophy or it's like the opposite of hypertrophy basically yeah. happens and it then all just becomes a downward cycle you become then incredibly fatigued at doing anything uh one as a result of going to the toilet 30 40 times a time a time losing blood from the stool throwing up uh dehydration uh loads of things so so yeah i mean i think so so that was sort of when you're around that was around 30 was that around 13 yeah. years so because that's yeah. i remember i remember you coming back um 
after that period and I think that was probably around the first times we'd sort of met and I do remember you you your arms and legs were really really slim yeah yeah I was the 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 thing was the majority of my body um was thin uh but I had been on an on uh in ex- extensive uh duration and and volume of steroids uh, mm. medical steroids not not uh, not gear <laughs> to uh, to get those muscles growing um steroids um to because that was almost like what the doctors first prescribed as the sort of antidote to try and calm things down mm. but with steroids obviously they make you incredibly um hungry uh usually but in in the case of anyone that is in a flare-up or has experienced a flare-up eating is almost like the last thing you want to do um but for 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 steroids they tend to inflame a large portion of your face you get you get almost like hamster Uh, yeah yeah puffy face you get puffy face um so it was like a complete contrast to what the rest of my body looked like because um you're really skin and bones like yeah, on the rest of you. I mean there was a time and this was when I had a flare up um I think I was 16 or 17 um because we went um after the flare up had finished uh, we went to Turkey for a family holiday mm. and I remember there was just a photo of me it looked like I'd just come out of like I don't know an, an extensive period of not eating because my rib cage was visible like at, at that point I was probably five foot eleven six foot and for a normal male weight you'd expect to be around what 12 13 stone yeah about I think 70, I, 75. which is about what 75 kilos yeah about like 75 that. kilos yeah and I was 61 kilos because I'd lost that amount of weight from um being that ill because yeah. no matter how much they pump into you um because i couldn't i couldn't stomach actual food so i was given intravenous fluids and and nutrition that way to at least try and help my gut absorb it quicker without getting rid of it because that's ultimately you eat but then you're shitting it out shitting out yeah so trying to actually gain weight or calories and energy from raw food is just not going to work um no matter how much they give you it's just it either comes out you either vomit it out or you shit it out and that's the reality of it um mm. when you when you're in the flare-up i mean the fact the vomiting is uh, at least in my experience has never been a relate uh, relation to the disease it's been more the pain because okay. when you're in extreme pain your body it just it, rejects everything just rejects everything and gets rid of it mm. the quickest way um but yeah but interestingly um pain in more recent times has subsided when i have flare-ups now i don't know if that's a a result of different medication that i'm on or the Mm. disease is slightly sort of changed in its uh where it was when i was younger i don't know but what is more noticeable is the the like the bloatedness and the uh the ache it's not a pain it's more of an ache and a like a like 
it, it's just the nature of it is, has changed. Symptoms-wise, in terms of the stool and everything, is still as it was, but the actual like feeling you have or that I have is different. It's not. Mm. It's not like a stabbing pain anymore. It's it's a more of a dull ache. Mm. Um, so it, it it it's changed for me, at least in the last five years. That's interesting to hear. And I guess you you've been on different treatments, and we'll come on to that over the period of your experience with ulcerative colitis I mean you spoke about something there which is um incredibly I think pertinent for a lot of people who don't understand what steroids mean which is um and I spoke about this in the podcast is that steroids are incredibly blunt immunosuppressants and by blunt I mean they have a huge huge range of side effects and they're 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 in a lot of ways, they're really, really good at their job, but they're 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 dirty and sort of nasty drugs in the sense that they can make people feel pretty pretty crap about themselves from a multitude of perspectives, basically. Yeah. Um. And what Lewis was describing there was sort of some of the side effects in so steroids can mess up your hormones as well, um, which is why they make your face balloon up. They can give you a bit of a tummy as well, but obviously the tummy and the uh, the face puffing up, that's just a result of the steroids. Really, um, if you didn't have the steroids, you'd be skin and bones, to be honest, yeah. because like you said, yeah. you're just losing so much. The other thing that um, I think wasn't helped by the fact that I was going through puberty was that um, was acne. Because mm. and it's the same with people that take steroids for, for bodybuilding purposes. It makes um you can get really bad acne. And I remember that same holiday I talked about when we went to Turkey. I lit my whole back, it wasn't my face, my whole back was covered in in spots. And so that made me incredibly self-conscious mm. on the holiday because on holiday, I'm in Turkey, it's hot, the swimming pools, I don't want to be walking around with a t-shirt on um i mean i was skin and bones anyway so to be fair having spots on my back it was like lesser of two evils really but mm. um it, it it it's definitely my experience now if a doctor ever suggests steroids i i almost just disregard them because in the initial prescription of them in earlier flare-ups they were great i instantly responded to them now they don't even work for me. There's mm. just absolutely no point me taking them because they give me more side effects than relief, um, mm. if any relief at all. So I, I, I just disregard them. Um, it's, it's just not worth it. They're also a pain in the ass because sometimes they give you, um, well, the ones I took were predicinal, um, and at one stage i was taking 16 daily yeah which is like i might as well just have a bowl of skittles in my hand and just down them because it's just there anyway there's i just wouldn't recommend steroids (laughs) they're just not good (laughs) there we are yeah yeah if you're going to take anything away from this podcast don't do don't do steroids kids don't do steroids yeah um (laughs) <laughs> so i I, th- I think we've sort of touched on this a bit kind of throughout everything we've been talking about about how 
disruptive this is to sort of your your day-to-day life and your day-to-day expectations um of what being a, a normal human being is like i think it would be good for people to sort of understand this the individual parts so i mean how did this really affect your schooling and your education you mentioned that obviously you 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 you, you there was large portions of your schooling that you you missed and i remember vividly that you would always be working like when we were at school um you'd always work very very hard um you always worked very hard after school it'd be like i'd be like oh let's come on let's play cod and you'd be like no uh i gotta do some work first and then i'll come play you're you're always very very disciplined um well i to be honest i think that's more a reflection of my mum and dad's support rather than me if it had been my way i wouldn't have done that (laughs) i think they understood um because without their support i wouldn't i i wouldn't have i wouldn't be in the position i am today with Mm. everything that i have been able to do um because my my parents really um supported me throughout this whole thing and still support me to this day so I, I I would have to say that was more their um, sort of uh, guidance and advice on do your work first before you play Call of Duty. Um, then, because if it was my way, it would have been the other way around. <laughs> um, and also, to be fair, I, I would have to say some of the teachers I had were really good at supporting that. I think um, first part there was quite a few teachers that really understood what it meant for them so there was that kind of support channel for them i mean this is going a bit off topic to the question but um yeah Uh, but if i do bring it back to your question um the the impact of it was obviously having to catch up on two three weeks worth of work two to three months worth of work depending on however long the flare-up was on 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 my own terms while still having to keep up with the current syllabus so you're almost like trying to do two workloads at once because you're trying to learn everything that everyone in your class has learned from three months ago whilst getting closer and closer to exams Mm. so it was a lot of workload and also i feel like that perhaps limited me a little bit in what i could have achieved um more GCSE because GCSE year was when I had a really bad flare-up. A-levels, I wasn't too bad. Um, But what I I noticed and what I learned from the GCSE flare-up was that there were certain things I could put in place for exam season should I be having a flare-up that could at least maybe mitigate some of the effects. So Mm. one being I could have my own room that I did my exams in um, because GCSE, I did it same as you guys all in the hall, which when you're in a flare-up, your stomach can be making some weird noises. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a meeting or uh, an exam room, uh, around 11 o'clock where you're getting a bit hungry and your stomach starts making whale noises 
there is that slight self-consciousness that everybody in the room can hear you <laughs> so and that when you're trying to do a maths paper or a history paper or whatever it is can be quite distracting and distracts you away from the actual thing you're trying to focus on and i'm not saying that the noises my stomach are making stop me from achieving a stars in every subject but there is that level of embarrassment or self-consciousness element to colitis because it is it is something that affects a lot of people but mm. in a in a class of 30 or every class of uh, 30 in a school there may be one person that has it mm. if you look at the average capacity of a school which may be yeah. 400 a junior whatever it is there's always just going to be maybe one or two people that have something like that so trying to get other kids to understand what they're going through um and understand that it's not their fault that their stomach's making noises like that it's quite it's quite difficult um so yeah that would be that would be probably the main way it limited me at school mm. um uh, I can't really think. At least in, in, in from an academic sense, I've yeah, really kind of yeah, touched upon the social, the social side, side of it. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, like you said, it is it is a common thing. Like um, we mentioned, it's one in four hundred, roughly, in the UK for ulcerative colitis, which is um, the disease. Obviously, you have. Um, I think just. Um, I, I do remember in that I remember in that year um, in GCSE visiting uh, you in hospital a bit before our exams. That would have been a few months before yeah. our exams. And then I remember at the time in the exams, uh, yeah, I remember you like having to go out during the exams, like maybe like one, two, three, four times. Um, yeah. So I don't, <laughs> uh, don't underplay this. I, I, I think it's, it was incredibly disruptive to you. It was more than just necessarily a few gurgly noises. And of course, that's what's making you self-conscious. But um, I think it was it was really, really quite disruptive, at least from my perspective, um, as to how you sat those exams. But it's interesting to hear and, and, and it's good to hear that you sort of learned so much from that and were able to take it forward in your A-levels so successfully that you ended up going to a great union doing a great course. Um, but it's it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to hear, isn't it? And it's, uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine it and can't understand it, but um, it's really interesting to hear it from your perspective. The, the only... Um... The only thing I wish had been done differently, at least from my perspective, is is um, making more people aware of it. Mm. And again, this is kind of again coming back from a um, looking back in retrospect at, at this. But um, if I'd have known now how the world would be in terms of stigmas and things and those kind of barriers to talking about mental health and illnesses and how those things are slowly being brought down so people feel more comfortable talking about it um i would have loved to have just spoke to our year and just said look this is not this not i i can't control this 
um, this is what might happen. If you would prefer uh, for, for me to, um, to do anything, to, to try and help you understand it, let me know. Like just to make people understand it more. Um, yeah. Because I think it would have helped people become a bit more sort of empathetic with it. Um, mm. Not to say that anybody was horrible about it, but just so that there was a bit more of an understanding between peer peer to peer. Like, I I don't know. It's just if I if I could do anything differently, I'd make more people aware of it. Mm. So so do you feel you were necessarily um, misunderstood at school? I think also it's 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 hard though because kids are kids and you're kids sort of, are kids, I, yeah. I, I, I think it's always like uh talking about poo even when you're like 16 can still be quite funny even when you're 18 even, they are no people. even, when even it's now, now it's quite funny <laughs> <laughs> um but i i think it yeah i th- i i i think it's it's hard isn't it because uh how much understanding can you have at that age but i don't know this is just all very existential at this point yeah i wouldn't say yeah i i completely agree with the fact that uh, what you say kids are kids actually how much um understanding can a 11 year old have or someone in the year below that doesn't even know you have about your condition but what i think if I could do anything would be getting the adults in my life at the time to understand it more and understand that it wasn't just a upset stomach. So when I say, sir, I need to go to the toilet, that you don't question that you just, Mm. you just go because, and I think that comes back to um, the fact that at the time the disease wasn't really, I wouldn't say mainstream, but it wasn't something that was known nearly as much as it is now in terms mm. of what it is. Because now when I when I speak to people, I say, like for example, for example, with with COVID and and uh shielding and whatnot, um people have asked, like, oh, when, when are you having your first jab? And I'm like, Well, I was double jabbed by March. And they're like, What? How come? And I say, Well, I'm clinically vulnerable um because i have colitis um and then I'm, they're like well what's colitis and they say oh it's it's a bit like crohn's and then they kind of start to piece it all together mm. and i think it's because there's just more information out there yeah so sh- there's more internet for you to look up diseases and you see celebrities talk about colitis there's multiple celebrities that you don't even know darren fletcher x-man united player jfk had colitis um who else uh oh what's the uh you know dynamo the magician mm. he had he had crohn's professor green has colitis so there's there's loads of these mainstream people in people's lives that are becoming more open about what they've suffered with and therefore you're spreading awareness because mm. you might you might look into it back then oh, nobody had instagram so you wouldn't even be able to follow these people yeah so but if i could change things retrospectively or use a time machine that would be what i would change but i, I my, my hands were tied at the time <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah 
uh, it is interesting you saying that and yeah i think that's beyond uh even um inflammatory bowels i think that, that there's just greater awareness and also i think yeah i think there's an increase uh like you said stigma is getting better for all sort of chronic conditions and mental health conditions yeah but i think um as well people take wider interest in their own health um and by extension end up learning about all these other conditions because uh working in the medical profession we see a lot of uh dr google oh doctor uh i think i've got this condition uh, i've got x y and z symptoms and yeah. google saw me this and that's uh it's it's a good thing and it's a bad thing um but that's just how it is that's the world we live in um so I, I think we spoke about we spoke about how this affected you from a very young age. We spoke about how this has affected your education. We've 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 touched on how it affected your social life, and then maybe it made you feel that at points you were lagging behind your peers, and that was most apparent at, um, at university. How did you? Because obviously, uh, we we sort of parted ways in uh, uh, from school around the age of sixteen, and then yeah. uh, we like like we alluded to at the beginning, we're relatively terrible at keeping in t- contact with each other. Um, how did sort of uni and those proceed uh, proceeding uh, following years go? Um, sort of from eighteen onwards. Um. 18 i had well when i was 17 as i mentioned earlier i went on that uh holiday to turkey um and that was about three months after a flare-up and my next flare-up didn't occur until my early term of my third year of uni so uh, that would have been September slash October of 2015. Okay. So there was quite a break in between, which mm. to me was quite a well was welcomed with open arms <laughs> because it was probably the longest break I'd ever had with it. Um, and yeah, then then I had another flare at uni, which was arguably not my most severe flare up um but was probably my hardest one to deal with because i was in an environment with people that mostly i didn't know um away from home in leeds going to a hospital for the to a new hospital for the first time so i didn't know my consultant didn't know the nurses there was no familiarity with any of these Mm. people um whilst then critically being away from my uh support network in, in my mum and dad who had always been the two people that were there every time there was a flare mm-hmm. i remember when we when we go back through the flares through my childhood my mum would sleep next to me every night in the ward because she almost became like a secondary nurse because um she wasn't going to leave me dad had to work and would come to see me every day when he'd finished work but there needed to be some money coming in and mum 
being the uh, maternal figure she is came in whilst uh, whilst Deb was working. So that was arguably the hardest um, flare-up because I was in a completely unfamiliar unfamiliar territory away from the two people that I trusted most. Um, so yeah. So to, I mean, it's good to hear you got a little bit of a, a break in university. Do you think you did a bit of sort of social catch up then? Was that sort of a period where you felt that you were maybe doing those things that you had missed out on at school? Or was it just you were so overwhelmed by it all? At that point, it was just a bit like, oh my gosh, like... Uh, how do I manage all this? Because moving away to university in itself, um, and I've talked about this before in the podcast, it's just, it's a crazy time. Um, yeah. Living it, it on your own, a, like you said. It was a bit of both, to be honest, because there was, on the one hand, the excitement of that independence and doing things that I'd never done before. Mm. But then there's, on the other hand, which again was a, a self-conscious uh, defence that, am I doing this right? Is this how you're meant to do these things? Like, because I hadn't experienced and grown up with people doing it for the first time. Mm. Um, there was then almost like, am I going to embarrass myself because I'm not acting in the correct way or I'm not saying the right things. Um, and therefore I would arguably say I became a bit socially awkward um, as a, as a result. And even to this day, sometimes I find myself in situations where I feel a bit socially uncomfortable because I just beyond I, my age is beyond where my experiences are. So sometimes it, it catches up and maybe I, when I meet someone for the first time, I don't, I come across too like uh, sort of sporadic or like overworked points or just appear nervous. It's probably because I am um, in those situations. Um, so it was a bit of both, really. Mm. And then I guess moving on to sort of life beyond uni, do you, obviously your health, like you said, has been generally improving sort of since school. Mm -hmm. um, is this something that affect has affected your work and your ability to work quite a lot, or do you? you find it is an easier easier environment than school perhaps and also helped by this fact that there's wider awareness of of Crohn's and UC uh, I think yeah what you just said at the end there is it's a lot easier in a work environment because you're dealing with adults so it's it's far easier to limit the detail while still getting the importance across of what you're saying because mm. you're never going to you're never going to tell your boss how many times she goes to the toilet, but you can make them aware that these are the symptoms and it may creep in every now and then. So there needs to be some kind of just at least a basic understanding that if I say I'm going to work from home today, I'm not feeling great, that this isn't an excuse because I've gone out on the piss on the night before and just can't be asked to come into work. It's actually because I just can't face the commute because there's mm -hmm. an, period, an extended period of time where I'm going to be away from a possible toilet um, mm. and things like that. But um, again, 
going back to the awareness of it, yeah, it's it's made easier by the fact that there may be people in the workplace that have experienced or worked with people that have had similar, so they already kind of know what to expect. Um, but also, I think people, especially um, in the workplace, people understand that nobody can simply sit at a desk and work nine till five. There's too many other factors in people's lives that affect how they work, whether that's um, children, you know, taking them to school, um, looking after uh, maybe a, a child with disability or special needs, and all of those kind of other push and pull factors that mm. people have to balance whilst at work. So for me to go and say, I have colitis, sometimes I might need to work from home. Other times I may just be off work for a while um, because I simply can't work. It's all kind of just thrown into a melting pot of other factors that balance out in, and have have to be by employers um, accepted because mm. you, can't, you can't discriminate against someone that has colitis. You can't discriminate against someone that says oh i can't do um i i can't do a certain day of working because i need to take my child to the consult like the, the, there's so much law in place that would prevent those kind of things happening um mm -hmm. so to, to throw colitis in the mix it's just another another thing that line managers have to to manage mm. um and there's 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 no person out there that doesn't have something that they they're struggling or balancing whilst at work. So why should colitis or Crohn's or IBD or whatever it is be any different? Yeah. Um, but I mean, I must admit, uh, I've always found it difficult though to bring up colitis at work, um, and I think that's partly due to the fact that. I always feel compelled to bring it up when you first start because they need to know early on because mm. you never know when a flare-up's coming. So mm. you're trying to create a conversation with someone that's your boss that you've literally been there like a week or so that you don't really know on personal terms yet. You just started a new job and you're about to sort of drop this bomb on them that you've got this disease and it might mean x y and z so to try and talk to a complete stranger in about something that's very personal to you in in the way that it affects you is quite difficult but i do always find once i've done that that i feel better about it because it's like okay that's off my chest i don't need to worry about it it's been received well i can just if it happens, it happens. But it's just that initial kind of talk about it that's most challenging, I think, for me. Yeah, um, yeah, most daunting, I can imagine as well. Yeah. Um. So I think we have touched on this quite uh, on and off throughout this whole podcast, that this is... And, and I spoke about this on the previous episode as well, about how bigger effect having a chronic condition and having a sort of silent condition can have on your mental health. Um, and by silent, I mean something that um, 
isn't necessarily visible to the uh, public eye. Like, uh, like you going to a toilet a lot. Sometimes, a lot of the time, people don't think anything of it. It's like, oh, maybe you've got a weak bladder or something like that. Um, yeah. But actually, it's it's something that's a bit more deep rooted than actually pathologically. So, um, and you, you've mentioned that obviously these early years, while you sort of just dealt with it and got got on with it, it actually maybe has been an incredible amount of uh was actually sometimes maybe quite traumatic um um yeah and disruptive um and how how would you say having ulcerative colitis has affected your mental health and how how have you seen this change over the years um well i i think firstly just to expand on the first point you made i think the reason possibly why I didn't show as much emotion given the severity and the traumatic nature of what I was going through was the fact that that was almost being expressed through my friends and my family and so it was like their emotion I don't know I don't know if I'm not a cold heartless bitch or like <laughs> i do have emotion but the fact is there was so much emotion going on around me that it, i kind of like was absorbed in their emotion when it in actual fact it was me that was the one that's suffering so why am i not the one that's expressing this? expressing it yeah yeah so that that's always played on my mind a bit as to why that happened but i think in general stress or traumatic experiences or grief things like that they always show themselves in in weird and unusual ways and i don't think everybody experiences this, these things in the same way so for me i tend to and i still do to this day and i think i always have has dealt with stress worry anxiety in a way that's counterintuitive which is to bottle it up and let it fester and it tends to make it worse at the end of the day um and therefore in my later years i think it's just a manifestation of all of that bottled up emotion coming to the surface and it's it's affected my self uh, self-confidence um my my social life anxiety makes social socializing incredibly difficult i've already touched upon when i come into new situations with people i haven't met before um on the surface i think i'm quite good at acting confident but under the surface i'm a nervous wreck i've just got mm. good at hiding it over over the time over the years and again that possibly is just years of practice of bottling up emotion and on the surface appearing fine, but in reality not. Um, but I think that the biggest sort of effect of the colitis on my mental health was um, my the anxiety that I've felt for the last six, seven years. Mm. Um, and that is, it's not just general anxiety, it's more agoraphobia which is kind of the fear of social situations public transport um and not 
people in general, but closed enclosed spaces where you feel you can't escape. Mm. And I really think it boils down to the fact that colitis is an incredibly embarrassing type, not disease, but the symptoms can be incredibly embarrassing. One, mm. to try and explain to someone the fact that you go to the toilet X amount of times. By the way, you can't control when you go to the toilet. When you go, you go. You don't. You can't clench your butt cheeks and it stays in. It comes out. I've tried. It comes out. So that is an incredibly thing to one have to deal with, and I can't believe I've revealed that to the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But if you have colitis, people will know what I'm talking about. Um, and so it just it's all those things manifest itself into this cycle of anxiety embarrassment fear of being in the spotlight or attention being brought to you Mm. Um, and that's probably how i would surmise how it's affected my mental health most the depression i think which i definitely had for a good number of years um to the point where at one point I did actually try and kill myself. Um, The depression, I think, was more just, again, deep-rooted emotions coming to the top, and it was was, uh, questions around why me, why why am I so different to everyone else, all these kind of self-doubting sort of natured questions. and like, well, what's the point? Like every every couple of years, I'm gonna have a flare up. What if the medication doesn't work? Blah, blah, blah. All these kind of what if questions created quite a deep and dark place in my head. And given I was someone that never really spoke openly about things and always tended to bottle things up, sometimes our own minds can be our darkest places. Um, and when you don't release those types of thoughts or get someone to rationalize them, it's quite, it's quite damaging. Mm. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it must be, uh, you shared so much there, um, which is incredibly insightful as the way that, um, people deal with colitis, people deal with chronic diseases um and i think it it shows it speaks volume firstly about your character that you're able to speak about it um but secondly i I think it's just so useful for people to understand that really that this can this can really uh send you like you said to quite a dark place um and have long-lasting effects even beyond the symptoms um because i think uh, I think there's. It would be naive to say, okay, you're fine now. Like, as in, I, uh, from what I know, you're not having a flare now. So, by a lot yeah. of people's uh, admission, they would say maybe, okay, you're fine now. But I think there's the things that linger on in the background, um, and the 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 psychological trauma of uh, of a chronic condition that um, can that there's vastly underestimated i think yeah and i think in some ways uh you you mentioned the 
term the kind of silent uh, you mentioned silent or kind of non-visible disease mm-hmm. and in some ways colitis Crohn's and mental health are all of those things because if you looked at me today um you wouldn't you you wouldn't be able to tell I had colitis and I think that can be from my perspective sometimes it can be quite frustrating because you can't you can't make people understand it if you can't physically show something if I come to you because I've broken my leg it's quite obvious I've broken my leg and I need help but if I come to you and say I'm depressed or I have anxiety or I have colitis unless I'm in a flare um, all of those things become very difficult to one diagnose one to understand because to the other person from their perspective there is nothing visibly wrong Mm. Um, and that I think can also be quite frustrating for someone that's trying to get help is trying to get across exactly how bad it is Um, Mm. especially to someone that's never isn't from that field or is a friend Um, and I think also what has really helped in the last couple of years is our approach to mental health in terms of phrasing of old man up like all these kind of things being sort of taken out of um of how we deal with things because it's not it it, it, it's uh it's more damaging There, there are other ways to communicate and try and help people and Phrases like man up definitely don't help. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, if anyone is into boxing, Tyson Fury, what he did and his struggles, I've, I've kind of resonated quite a lot with things he said, and he talks a lot of truths about mental health. So I'm a big supporter of what he's been doing. But he talks about similar things about the it's a silent pandemic. I mean, we've got COVID going on, but there's also, as a result, a mental health pandemic. And mm. I don't think that gets enough headlines. Um, so, so yeah, I've, I, I've rambled, so I will allow you to go. No, 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 you, are, you, <laughs> you haven't rambled at all. Um, no, you haven't rambled at all. Sorry, I was just, uh, it's just uh, soaking it in. And I think it's um, important for me to just let you, speak about this because i think um it's incredibly honest um and you you put it very very well the way you're saying this um and i think it's very relatable hopefully it's very relatable so i i i think over the years you've said your your physical health has improved like so to sort of quantify it how would you say the flares have sort of gone from say the age of 13 since we first met how many flares would you have a year versus maybe now? Um, in the earlier days, I would probably say I would have a flare every six, seven months. Mm. But they would be able to get them back under control into remission quite quickly. Mm. But as I got older and again going into this period of my teenage years where I said it was worse I think because of the amount of hormonal change I was going through the medications weren't perhaps being as effective as they would have hoped Mm. so the flare-ups would become more frequent 
but would take longer to get under control. And was this at, the, at this point? Was it ma- mainly just sort of um, pentaster and um, and uh, steroids? Yeah. So I've been on pentaza, methotrexate, azathioprine, and prednisol was once a full um, regime. Regime, a daily regime of tablets. Um, I don't take any of those anymore, actually, because I'll quickly give you a, a quick time frame of medications. So that was the initial infantry or armor armory that they would use. That soon quickly became um, ineffective to the point where it was just doing nothing. I was still flaring, still, still uh, mucus, blood. 30, 40 times a day, losing weight, fatigue, vomiting, dehydration, all of those kind of things. Still in hospital and hadn't gone home. Um, and this was this was most noticeable because I remember it so well because the World Cup was on in South Africa. So this was the 2010 World Cup. Um, and... Uh, I was de- that dehydrated at the time that, and unfortunately at the time it was a junior doctor was trying to cannulate someone that was dehydrated. And as a child, I'd never been great with needles. And to this day, I'm still not good with needles or cannulas as a result of this one experience where they took nine times to try and find a vein um, because I literally had no veins on the surface yeah, when, when you're that dehydrated you just you have no interact like you have no no blood basically yeah. peripherally so it's really really hard so um even after i came out of the hospital when i eventually stopped flaring my arm was still purple from all the bruising of where they had tried to cannulate me um but yeah that that time was most noticeable is when things weren't doing anywhere near what they were doing at the start and so i guess i developed some kind of resistance to these types of drugs mm. um because in essence they are immunosuppressants and ultimately are a type of antibody in some way or shape or another so your body will eventually discover it's not meant to be in your system and it will i guess drop in effectiveness and it was at that point um a new drug was on the market, which hadn't really had passed trials and all of that. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been able to be given to me. But there was a lot of discussion that I wasn't, to, uh, to make this clear, I wasn't even involved in these conversations about this drug because I was underage. So they wanted to put me on infliximab, which is a biologic. Mm. Yes um and the my parents had to have multiple conversations with the consultants because it was a relatively new drug at the time um and sorry how how old were you at this point uh so 2010 so about 15 16 yeah yeah so um the the consultants had to have various conversations my mum and dad uh, were prepped um, on what the possible uh, 
side effects and initial reactions could be upon administration hyper uh hyper you know, what's the medical term for allergic reaction anaphylaxis you get yeah. a lot of people who have anaphylaxis or anaphylactoid yeah. reactions it's quite common with infliximab so they were prepped and warned that perhaps i could uh go into cardiac arrest so there would have to be a crash team on standby on my first dosing um so that so if you put yourself in my mum and dad's shoes this is quite scary to know that this drug can either kill my son or make my son better um and that may be me being a bit dramatic but those were the things that were stated on the form on the mm. consent form so they wouldn't put them there if they, there wasn't a reason to put them there but I had my first dose i was out of the hospital within a week because it worked that quick uh, so i stayed on that drug and it for anyone that hasn't uh had a biologic before you usually have a loading dose yes so you have your first dose uh then you have your second dose a week later then every then you have a fortnightly a monthly and then you go eight weekly if i remember yeah. correctly yeah um and i then got to the point where i was in remission and i stayed on infliximab until actually august 2019. okay um so i was on it for almost uh it's almost 10 years really. 10 years which uh at the time was well above the expectancy for uh my body to not eventually develop resistance because it's again a biologic your body does eventually re develop resistance to it and its efficiency and effectiveness mm. just completely tanks um and again and then i started flaring again in uh august 2019 so uh my and at this time actually uh 2019 i changed consultant at my at my hospital um and I don't, he probably isn't listening, but um, he won't mind me saying this because I've told him before, but he's been the best consultant I've ever had um, over my almost 20 years now of suffering with colitis. And um, he put me on to another biologic, which was called adalimumab, mm. um, which is a weekly injection that I do myself at home. It takes two seconds stings a little bit when i press the button and it stabs my leg a bit like people that have diabetes they pinch a bit of skin stab themselves it's done it's just like that except i don't do it as regularly as someone with uh insulin or uh, diabetes um but that has kept me under control since then well actually to be fair uh missed out a lot a bit of this story because Initially, they gave me uh, a single dose every two weeks, and I was still not quite in remission. I was still symptomatic. Okay. So it wasn't until March 2020 where I had to have a colonoscopy done whilst in sort of a flare, but not quite a complete flare up, which mm. wasn't the most ideal. And I'm kind of surprised that they even had to do that because of the dangers um, that can happen with someone that's already flaring, just like inflamed bowel, higher risk. Yes. 
perforation, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it basically, the reason was they needed to have evidence that I was flaring to get to access funding to uh, to basically um, grant access to having a double dose because these drugs are very expensive on the NHS. So they have to actually have to have the medical evidence to support why the prescription is as it is. Anyway, because uh, colonoscopy confirms what I already could bloody well tell them. <laughs> um, and I was then given to uh, the, the go ahead to double dose. And then I was in remission and touch would have been in remission ever since. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, I mean, it's a it's a hell of a journey. And I think you, you speak about so many things that are actually um, although you won't want to hear it, um, are quite unique, which is uh, funding being granted for drugs. And it highlights problems within the NHS, but it highlights problems with just uh, public health care as a whole. Um, but at the same time, the the advantage is, is that this is paid for um, and you just yeah. uh, it, it it's also this is, this is why i mentioned sorry this is why i mentioned way back in the start of the podcast about it limits your choices in life geographically because if i moved to a country that didn't have a public health adelima or a publicly funded nhs equivalent i would be stuffed yeah uh, be stuffed because I can't afford two grand a milligram or whatever it is. Mm. Um, yeah, and and so even actually. across the country, different um, that it's getting better, but different trusts and different places in the country have different thresholds for what drugs they will give. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's a. I'm not, we're not going to get too political here or uh, geopolitical. Well, some, but yeah, some some. some as I'm aware, even have different ways of administering the same drug. So mm. the infliximab, which was the first uh, biologic I had, um, having that down here in in, uh, in Berkshire and Wexham Park, that has to be administered over three hours. So I would have to go to hospital and sit in a bed or a chair for three hours hooked up to a yeah. trip. In Leeds, when I was at uni, I'm still having the drug. They do it over half an hour and then you can go. Ah, that's interesting. So, so that was another factor and difference between uh, the geographies was one, I'd have to give up three hours of my day to go and have a needle stuck in me or I go to Leeds and I have it done in half an hour. That's interesting because, uh, yeah, in the hospital I work with and the ward I currently work on, it's a similar sort of setup to Berkshire where it's like, yeah, like half a day you're losing, you come in. Mm. Like, I can't remember what day. There's a specific day anyway in the clinic that's attached to my ward where the IBD patients will come in uh, maybe for a morning or an afternoon. I can't remember what it is. I've been on the ward for a week and I'm just off nights. Give me a break, guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they'll, they'll come in and it's, yeah, it's a half a day sort of jobby. Um, well, I, th I think we've given a whirlwind tour of um, some pretty, uh, uh, of sort of a, uh, how, 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 medical care has developed um for ulcerative colitis and the same can be said for Crohn's as well was surgery ever discussed with you is that ever been an option and has that been ever something you've considered I um 
I've always been told by every consultant I've seen, um, and this is based off the colonoscopy results and the, the findings and the biopsies and all these kind of things, that I've never been bad enough for surgery. So it's interesting. God knows what it what it's like to be bad enough to need surgery. Um because what I've experienced I thought was bad enough. But if there's even more levels to it, then I wouldn't even want to imagine what that's like. Um, but yeah, I've never been told I would ever need surgery unless anything drastically happened. Mm. Um however I have considered it. I even went as far as seeing a private consultant, private top surgeon in the country in Birmingham mm. about the possibility of ver of because I was curious because it being told you're no you're never bad you're you're not bad enough for surgery and that be the end of the sentence. Well, what if I get bad enough that I need surgery? What surgery is there out there? They they didn't tell me what surgeries are. yeah i know there's a stoma but what other alternatives are there to those types mm. like i didn't i didn't have any knowledge i was just told no you're not bad enough medication will do you but that was like well okay well what if the medication stops working and there's nothing new that comes out what type of surgery is a possibility what are the pros and cons? How much is it going to cost? Blah, blah, blah. So I'd considered it, but it was more just an exploration of that potential. Of that option, yeah. 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 Um, an actual fact, um, I was given quite a few options. Uh, one being um, a stone that like, they basically take the whole thing out. They take the whole large bow out, yeah. Yeah, and you, you would have a stoma. Um, I've uh, never particularly liked the idea of that. The other option was that they would take out a portion, which is the bit that would typically be the most diseased part, which would, if you think about, um, <laughs> the only way I can describe it of what, in my head, and you're definitely uh, correct me on what it actually looks like but your intestines is just like you know the sausages that are all like sort of lined up mm. they're all twisted together and they come out the machine if you were to take one of the sausages out of the chain and then stick it back together that would then be your new your bowel yeah but in doing so all you're doing is just shortening the time it takes from your food to be digested to come out the other end so you yes. might as well be in a flare-up in the first place because you're still going to be going to the toilet more often because it takes less time to get through the system. So that is that correct. Was, that is, that was no, that's, that. that's actually a very eloquent way of putting it. Um, that's actually a very I just smart thought, way what's the what's the point of going through potentially life-changing surgery that's very dangerous to ultimately end up only going to the toilet more often anyway? I might as well be yeah. in a flare-up. So I yeah. mean that's quite a a kind of whistle stop tour of all the surgeries and uh maybe a, a bit of a a dark humor coming out from my side and my opinion of that particular surgery but i don't think if i can avoid surgery i will mm. um because I, I, yeah. and that's that's my perspective on it it's not representative obviously but i would avoid surgery unless i was told otherwise 
unless it was a yeah. last resort. Yeah, and I think um, surgery just as a whole, it, it was always a last resort um, because, as you said, we tend to um, go for the stoma bag because that is the most effective surgery. And like you said, when we're taking out such uh, taking out the bowel, it doesn't really improve symptoms unless we take it all out. Um, yeah. So we 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 do it as a last resort the advantage is um like i spoke about in the last podcast is that it's curative you will never if you have ulcerative colitis crohn's disease is different if you have ulcerative colitis you have no bowel you won't have symptoms anymore you will have a bag for the rest of your life but you will have no symptoms anymore and for some people like you spoke about where you're having this excruciating pain in your tummy and and a lot localized to your bottom as well um that can be a massive relief um it's yeah. interesting to hear that you're going 30 to 40 times a day and um the uh the that was uh, at my worst that was at my worst yeah okay so fine um but yeah like i've seen people who, the problem is is that if people don't get a symptomatic improvement with infliximab then i i think because you'd had improvement with infliximab that's a bit different but we will have patient there are some patients roughly about 25% of patients who just don't respond to infliximab. And then at that point, yeah. it's like, you're not going to respond to biologics. It's time for surgery. So that's interesting. That's interesting that you were told um, that. Um, and also different trusts and different people work in different ways. Um, and yeah. it's not I necessarily... I mean, this, this, was, this was 2010, 2011. So yeah. So it's, the yeah. amount of research has probably exponentially grown on it since with clinical trials and yeah yeah i can imagine it has. i mean we were both uh yeah i was 2010 i was nowhere near enough medically inclined to comment about what the uh the research yeah. was like then to be honest <laughs> um so i th i think we have covered a very very large portion of your experience of inflammatory bowel disease we've touched on um how it has changed over the years in terms of your symptoms in terms of um your medications that you've dealt with we've touched on how this affected your schooling your social life and then by extent pulling that all together how this has affected your your mental health and your day-to-day -day life going forward i think it would be quite nice to sum up just to sort of think about what advice would you give to your younger self or someone else you knew who was a bit younger a bit earlier on in their ibd journey um for lack of better words ibd journey um yeah. about how how to deal with it um and what would you like to say to people who don't have ibd as well um well i i think what i'm about to say translates across both both groups um and it's something that i do see pop up quite a lot um as a as a hashtag or as a phrase which is it's okay to not be okay um because it translates to both a physical to your physical health and your mental health it's okay to have a bad day to um to lean on people for support um to it, it's not considered a nuisance it's not considered to be um a drain on other people um it's it's okay to reach out and i re really wish that i could tell myself that earlier and to lean on friends more for support and just 
talk about how I'm feeling because I don't I don't think I ever really spoke whilst in hospital about how I was feeling all I ever spoke about was how many times I've gone to the toilet today is there blood in it have I been sick uh everything was about the disease it was never about me which sounds which may explain a lot of things because uh, when I referred back to the fact that I was never really emotional is because you weren't talking about my feelings. You were talking about how my body and what my body was doing, never about how I was feeling up here or, or anything like that. So I really wish I could just go back and tell myself um, and even my peers, because there's bound to be people in our year that were going through things that we didn't even know about. Um, it may have been more obvious that there was something up with me because I wasn't I was missing large portions of school. But there was probably other people in our class that were suffering with things that at the time they might not have realized may have been depression or anxiety, because again, the awareness of it and the um the kind of education and just general knowledge of those subjects may have been misdiagnosed as something else. You don't know what was going on at home. So I would just say, and I would say this for everyone is to it's okay to be not okay or whatever the saying is i know it's something i want to say everybody will know what i mean but um it's okay it's okay to ask for help and don't be afraid no matter how small or big there'll be there'll be someone that will help you and if if it's not received well then they're not worth having in your life and i think partially it's why i have quite a small circle of friends because i i don't need people in my life that aren't gonna support me at my lowest Mm. um because otherwise what's the point so Mm. so yeah that that would be my advice to everyone seek help when you need it don't be afraid thank you so much um and that was a really 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 powerful and nice way to end this podcast i think um Thank you for coming on the show. I think this has been incredibly. <laughs> no, you're very welcome, mate. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of editing to do. I know that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I think this has been incredibly insightful for me. As like having, uh, although, like I said, we occasionally speak about these things. We don't. I haven't spoke to you in depth about some of these things ever. Um, so it's incredibly insightful for me. I think it's incredibly insightful for people both with and without IBD, and. I think your honesty um, and the way that you quite eloquently put a lot of these things um, is it, it really resonates with me and I think it will really resonate with people. So um, thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you very much for sharing your experiences with Crohn's disease, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Um, yeah, if it was Crohn's, it would be a different topic, different story, <laughs> I think. Slightly, slightly, but yeah, everyone, everyone's journey with inflammatory bowel disease is unique. Um, and yeah, so yeah, thank you very much for coming on, mate. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, take it easy, man. Cheers. Cheers, Frankie. So that is a wrap. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed actually having it. As usual, follow me on all socials. Just repeat prescription radio pretty much everywhere. 
I'm on all the listening platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, etc. On Instagram, I am repeat prescription underscore Frankie. That's it for this month. I'm going to be continuing the series on IBD, talking to a friend of mine who actually has Crohn's disease. So stay tuned for that. <laughs>